can't believe I'm about to talk about this because I had so successfully avoided giving any commentary whatsoever on this story. But every time I try to get out, y'all pull me back in. I'm ashamed to say, or obviously perhaps not too ashamed, but ashamed enough to say that the word of the week, or rather the phrase of the week, is Gorilla Glue. I know many of you listening already know what I'm talking about as soon as I said that, but for those who don't, the way I would describe it is that this is perhaps the Tiger King of 2021, because this Gorilla Glue story is just so absurd, and yet it has so many of us captivated. So here's what happened. A woman named Tessica Brown went viral because she used Gorilla Glue to gel down her braided ponytail because she'd run out of hairspray. And apparently, instead of using something called Gorilla Snot, which I got to be honest, I wasn't familiar with, she decided, okay, Gorilla's in the title, so it must be good. And weirdly enough, if you just knew nothing about this story and you just looked at her hair, you'd be like, oh, damn, where'd she get that gel from, right? To lay it all down and edges all nice and crispy. I mean, her shit looked like it was painted on her head. It was laid. Now, doesn't take a rocket scientist or a medical expert to know that putting Gorilla Glue in your hair is a terrible idea. The TikTok of her doing this, though, has been viewed over 20 million times. She did another TikTok in which you see her vigorously scrubbing her hair with the shampoo, and she is nearly in tears. She also admitted on social media she tried tea tree and coconut oil, and suddenly we have a full-on social media medical mystery occurring in real time. Will the Gorilla Glue girl be made whole again? Can she successfully defeat the destructive force of Gorilla Glue? So she went to the hospital and they gave her acetone wipes and some kind of water. And then suddenly she has a GoFundMe link, which now has generated about $15,000. And suddenly there's a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon that has vowed to help her through this Gorilla Glue trial. And suddenly she is a manager um, and it's just all kinds of crazy. Now, Gorilla Glue, they finally were forced to release a statement saying, basically, sorry you're going through this, but uh, this is kind of on you because now Tessica Brown is also talking about suing Gorilla Glue because it doesn't say explicitly not to use it on your hair, but it does say don't use this shit on your skin. So if it can't go on your skin, why would you put it on your hair? But okay, whatever. Anyway, Gorilla Glue's statement read, our spray adhesive states in the warning label, do not swallow, do not get in eyes, skin, or clothing. Okay, <laughs> that's where we are right now. Now, I've seen some folks say that because it doesn't specifically say hair, she may have a case. Now, this is kind of the latest example of why I weep for humanity uh, Ms. Brown talked about how she felt hurt that people were attacking her online. And I come back to, but you put Gorilla Glue in your hair. Of course, people were going to have jokes. And some people have even gone so far as to turn this into a bit of a racial issue and saying that white people do stupid shit on the Internet all the time. We have more sympathy, though I'm struggling to think of the example in this case because white people get clowned too. Um, and now, Smokey, I ain't the smartest woman in the world, but who the fuck doesn't know not to put Gorilla Glue in their hair? It seems like every now and again, people decide to embody the old adage, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. About six or seven years ago, remember when it was that thing where people were eating Tide Pods because an internet meme dared them to do it? But in that case, this was teenagers. In this case, Tessica Brown is a 40-year-old woman. And while I certainly do not wish her any harm... Or, or I should say any further harm, I don't think I can arrive at the point where I feel sorry for her. And if that makes me a bad person, so be it. Uh, we just got to keep it a buck and some change. We got to be able to call a thing a thing. Meaning if it's stupid, it's just kind of stupid. And besides, let's all really, really have an even realer moment with ourselves. This all feels like an elaborate clout chase. Now, she's documented every step of this mishap on social media. Suddenly, you know, as I mentioned, you have the GoFundMe page. You got the manager. <laughs> you got all these things going on. Why she has a GoFundMe page, I have no idea. Um, but that's just the way things work nowadays. 
you know, being given some alcohol wipes, emotional distress from a self-inflicted wound is maybe that's what the money is for. Um, you know, maybe some wigs when it's all said and done. I guess you could say that's where the GoFundMe funds will be put toward. Again, I'm not trying to kick this woman when she's down, but for us to be a thriving society, for us to bring some level of sense to this, stupid shit has got to be called stupid shit. And I would also say, if this whole fiasco results in Tessica Brown getting some cash or she gets a talk show, God bless her. But mostly, I pray for her followers. Now on to today's show. My guest today was a big part of a lot of people's childhood, their young adult lives. He became a beloved Nickelodeon superstar. And then he made a career turn that entrenched him as a legacy on a legacy show. He's got a new sitcom coming out. And while some child actors often want to distance themselves from their childhood stardom, he has not only been embracing it, he's also resurrecting it, which he'll explain that in a moment. He's had an impressive 18-year run on Saturday Night Live, making him the longest tenured cast member in the show's history. During his nearly 20-year career on the show, he's delighted us with such wonderful skits as What Up With That, Them Trumps, and his Steve Harvey impersonation, as well as a lot more. Up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Keenan Thompson. So, uh, Keenan, you've been famous for a long time. So tell me about the first time you felt famous. I think the first time was probably a, like a premiere or something, you know, I think because like movie premieres is always a big to do. Like when all that came out, I think we might have been all at home or something like that. So like there wasn't no big party or nothing, but like Mighty Ducks or whatever, it was like, you know, yeah, people came out because they knew the first one and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I'm in this too. My face on the poster or whatnot, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? So I'm up in here, basically. So I don't know. I just felt like real cocky about it pretty early. You know what I'm saying? Just because I was like, yeah, I'm up in these movies. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to do this Nickelodeon. Like, it's, it's on and cracking. And then I had that wake-up call once, you know, I was done with Nickelodeon and those couple years in between that and SNL where it showed me like and nothing really guaranteed like that showed me like how to really grind through the ups and downs of being an audition and actor basically that's a really politically correct answer um considering how long <laughs> I mean it is considering how long you've been famous um you know as a child star I got to imagine when you were a kid, like people had to be kind of running up on you like, yo, this is Keenan, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, a little bit. My mom was very overprotective as far as like people that we knew trying to act funny, you know what I'm saying? Like trying to come around for this and that and the other or whatever. She was very protective about that kind of stuff. But it took a while because I was still only doing like kids entertainment. So people were like patting me on the back and everything. But nobody was trying to like get at my pockets like that because it was just like, yeah, he's famous, but like famous for kids. So, you know, he can just have that. Sign this little popcorn bucket for my, you know, my kids. They like bad Alberts and stuff like that. So it never was any, anything like too invasive necessarily. You know, you have done so much in your career. Like anybody who puts you in the bucket of just being like, I'm a child actor or he's a child actor is frankly stupid because like you have done <laughs> so much beyond SNL and the side projects you've done. But uh, now you're kind of taking a trip back in terms of nostalgia. You were reuniting with uh, your old pal, Kel, and you're going to, you, you know, you guys are going to do all that, which is the show you were known for. Uh, what does it mean to you to reprise that part of your life again? I mean, it means the world, you know, it all, it also means everything that people still be on Good Burger like that, you know, it's like number four on Netflix or whatever, you know, so like, <laughs> it always feels good that your work holds up, but it's also like fond memories, you know, it's not like I'm looking back on painful times and people keep reminding me of like a painful experience, you know what I'm saying, like that was my homie, here's my homie, and it, it feels great that we can be on another level together, you know what I'm saying, it just feels like a natural 
maturation that you want to have happen in your professional career. You know what I mean? You want to be able to go from the guy in front of the camera to the guy behind the camera to the guy running everybody, you know what I'm saying? Or whatever. So those are the, you know, that was always kind of my goal is trying to get to like, you know, the, you know, Steven Spielberg or whoever's like running a whole studio type levels type stuff, you know, Tyler Perry even, you know what I mean? So I imagine when your partnership was, you know, really at the forefront of the, of a lot of, you know, people and networks or whatever. I can only imagine some of the pitches you got. Can you tell me what was the worst Keenan and Kale idea or pitch you've ever received? <laughs> there was like a Keenan and Kale pitch where we were like, like I mean, it just seemed like the next pitch was like Keenan and Kale in college. You know what I'm saying? And I didn't really like love that just because it was like, Everybody's done that, you know what I'm saying? The Saved by the Bell, the college years, you know what I'm saying? Uh, whatever show, the college years. And it's like, you're going to do something, like, grow them up, you know what I mean? We was 22 at that point, you know what I mean? So it's like, we beyond college, it's like ready for, like, real life type stuff. And I thought that would have helped us, like, bridge that gap between child actor and adult actor, as opposed to, like, continuing down kind of, like, the young, you know, angle, basically, by being in college still or whatever. So that didn't work out necessarily. So I was, you know, looking for a bridge, you know, and SNL turned out to be that for me. Like it, it bridged that gap between people taking me serious as a young performer and serious as a, as a grown man. So uh, before we get to that part of your career, let's talk about your, your new sitcom coming out, Keenan. Yeah. Um, you're a widowed father of two and your father-in-law is Don Johnson uh-huh. and your brother <laughs> is Chris <laughs> Redd. <laughs> Um, how did this project come about? Uh, you know, it's another like natural progression from like SNL people. So like anytime you get on that show, you hope that it turns into a springboard into your next thing, whether it's like a whole lot of movies or a TV show for you or a TV show that you're a part of or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So I've been through the development cycle a couple few times and we landed on this idea. And this was the third go around of it all. and by this time I was just thinking like, all right, maybe I need to bring these ideas more close to myself basically. And then I was also thinking like, what kind of, you know, subject matters have I not seen really explored? And that's where the widow part came in. So, you know, and you know, everything else is pretty similar to my story. And then I was meeting with writers and the writer that I ended up creating the show with Jackie Clark, you know, she came with a similar idea and I was like, well, that's exactly, I guess who I need to be writing this with. So that's what happened. And then we did the pilot and it was cool, but it wasn't, you know, as great as everybody wanted it to be. So we redeveloped and now we brought in like David Casp, who's running black Monday, you know, Don Cheadle show and stuff. And, uh, we got a good squad, you know, we recasted and ended up getting Don Johnson and we got Chris in there, you know what I'm saying? And Kimry Lewis, who's wonderful from, um, she was on single parents for a little while. Um, and then on down the road, like Taylor Louderman and fortune Feimster. It's just a, a well-rounded cast. So, um, given that the series is titled after your name and knowing what your real life is, what does your wife think about <laughs> the fact that you were having an entire series called Keenan? You have two kids, which y'all have kids, like two kids, right? Mm-hmm. But what does she think about the fact that this series is based off you being widowed and nothing like your real life? Yeah, I mean, she had her jokes in the beginning, like, and so I'm, I'm just dead. I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's a television show. It's not our actual life, <laughs> but you know, we do take certain things that are positives and then we try to put a spin on something to make it a different show that's all but yeah she definitely had her jokes in the beginning (laughs) yeah i would imagine so i don't really know if she's all the way cool with it today actually (laughs) (laughs) i'm not surprised because i'm like yo you with this entire time about different projects and then the one that's allegedly based on your life you X her out of it. Like if I were her, I would be feeling some kind of way too. You know what I'm saying? Some kind of way probably, but you know, she's in a special position. It's not really about her. It's about an interesting TV show. So in addition uh, to that, I mean, as I said, you're reuniting with Kel and you guys are going to do a reprisal of all that. Yeah, it's already done. They've done like 30 episodes already. You never came off, at least to me, 
as if you were ashamed of that part of your career as if it wasn't. But like you spent a lot of your part of your career trying to get people to distance from you as a child actor under this. And then now you're going back to this. Was there any trepidation about going back to, you know, what you tried to get people to not see you as? No, I mean, I think SNL helped me with that pretty quickly, you know, just because if you make it through a season or two of that, people just start giving you your props as being a like real performer, basically. So, you know, I didn't want to be like necessarily on a sitcom on Nickelodeon right away. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't want to play like anybody's big brother or like uncle, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, I did always have a special place in my heart for them. So like if they want me to do like kids choice, I'm about to host kids choice and stuff like that and keeping those kind of relationships going. I was fine with that. But it's it's, it's your whole like way of making a living. You know what I'm saying? If people don't take you seriously in projects that are going to be able to like pay you the wages that you need to survive, <laughs> to survive, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yo, like. I can't keep putting myself in precarious situations where people keep looking at me like I'm a child. So I would be aware of it. But like I said, SNL kind of moves people past that very quickly because I'm up there standing next to like all these, you know, comedic giants like right now in, in times like when they were young or whatever. But people that people had already like stamped their approval on, basically. So that spills over to you once they see you there a bunch of times. So as you're often introduced or often known as when people are like, oh, it's, you know, Kenan Thompson, longest tenured SNL cast member ever. <laughs> How does that actually make you feel? Are you feeling like I'm 9,000 years old? Are you feeling like this is a great achievement? <laughs> like, how does it make you feel to know you have this special distinction in SNL history? I mean, it makes me feel great. It's hard to like I don't really know what it means. You know what I'm saying? Because like, I'm still there and it's not like I'm outside of it where everybody's giving me all these awards and prizes, you know what I'm saying? And like all this money is just raining down on me from every which direction, just because I got that like status or whatever. Like I'm still a working actor. I come to work every day, try to get my scenes done remember my lines and be a professional. You know what I'm saying? Like and it, it boils down to that. But I mean, I guess I get as I get older, you know, it'll probably be like, man, that's a like super duper achievement. Like, look, nobody's ever even come close. But I don't know. I might have started something and somebody might break that record in a couple of years. You know what I'm saying? Just because like I think you can do both. You can do that show and do some other things or whatever and like always stay committed to the homeland, basically. Um but yeah, man, I mean, I still feel young, so I, I don't really know. Like, I feel good that I've accomplished something like that at, at an early age, basically. So is it weird to you that at the same time where people are like, oh, my God, Kenya Thompson, longest tenured SNL cast member ever. But then they'll say, like, well, has he been on too long? So does it feel weird to be praised and alternately criticized for the same thing? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any criticism always feels funky, you know what I'm saying? Because you'd be going out with good intentions, but at the same time, you know, people have different opinions about things. And then I have different opinions about things, but I also have my opinion that I feel the best about, which is wanting to be there if I'm asked to be there. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'm not asked to be there and I'm forcing an issue, then I'd be like, oh, I'm just not listening to people telling me that I'm not as, you know, wanted here as I think I am. But they keep calling me, you know what I'm saying? So if it was the other way around, I would walk out the door. But at the moment, everybody is, is pretty good with it. I do keep winding up being a lot of old men lately, though. <laughs> right. Well, um, hopefully you will allow me to ask all my nerdy SNL questions. But Of course. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that because I got a lot, especially about skits that you do because what's up with that is like <laughs> and black jeopardy uh, but, but we gonna get to that like i'm not i'm not gonna spoil it because i have some very fun questions along those lines so um i've heard you talk about this before read about you talking about this before you said your initial audition with saturday night live was quote disastrous what was about that audition that made it such a train wreck I had to do stand up for the first time in my life and I had never done it before. So to have to do something where 
my whole future kind of hindered on that going well, it was really stressful. You know what I'm saying? And I was a big fan of stand up. Like I had been around comedy clubs. Like that's the main thing I used to do when I first moved out here to LA when I was 18 or whatever. Um, so I wasn't, I knew how, you know, it should be done necessarily. I just didn't had ever done it. So for me coming from like sketch and just performing on TV shows and stuff like that, I just started doing characters right away as opposed to like saying hi to the office. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anybody from Baltimore in here get some applause, like all that, those little kind of cheats just to warm people up. I didn't do any of that. And it was just weird and awkward <laughs> and quiet. And once it was, I got a call back or whatever a couple of days later and that was in the studio. So the first one was in a comedy club and then the studio callback felt better because it was just me and the camera basically and people over in the shadows, but I couldn't even see them. You know what I'm saying? So it was like a little kid playing in his room basically. Um, and then they didn't call me for a while. They called, didn't call for like a week, which isn't good. Like if you know anything about auditioning you know you either get the job that day or within a day you know what i'm saying it's never like a week so a week went by and i thought i had lost it but they were like all right we want you to audition one more time but back at the laugh factory another comedy club and i was like whatever man you know what i'm saying i guess i'll do it and they wanted 10 minutes as opposed to five minutes so i just added on i don't even remember what i added on but all of it was it was zero jokes in it <laughs> it was just me talking like either Arnold Schwarzenegger or Al Sharpton or whoever, you know what I'm saying? So I was just running around being silly and uh, the people I was up against, they were all stand-ups and they were killing it. You know what I mean? So it was terrifying. Interesting experience. Um, so uh, I had Leslie Jones on my podcast, uh, you know, maybe about a month or so ago. And she talked about fireball. <laughs> Yo, Leslie is, you know how she is, right, man? Like straight up, unfiltered, whatever. Mm -hmm. And she admitted that because of, I mean, you, you've talked about this before, because of the comments that you had before about SNL trying to find a black female performer and struggling, right? So she came in with an attitude towards you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, what I think is really hilarious, you two have amazing on-skit chemistry. Like amazing. And she admitted, she was just like, Oh yeah, that's how I felt about him initially, but that's my dude. Like, I rocks with him, I fucks with him, whatever. Mm -hmm. Why do you and Leslie in skits have such good chemistry? That's my homie. I mean, she became my homie immediately. Like, she looked me up and down when I went in the room to meet everybody that just got the job. You know what I'm saying? Because I guess she had that, and I figured they all had that in their mind. Like, because people twisted my words up or whatever. You know what I'm saying? But I wanted to like make my presence known that, you know, I would never say nothing like that anyway. Doesn't matter. What does matter is that they here now. We family, like, let's get to work. So I saw her, like, looking me up and down, like, sizing me up, you know what I'm saying? Just, like, trying to, like, check me on, like, did you really say that fucked up shit or whatever? And I'm like, no. And just in the eyes, you know what I'm saying? And within two seconds, we was just, like, kicking it and just having fun laughing. And every day, we would kick it and hang out and laugh like I would check in with her like her dressing room was right next door to mine you know what I mean and she just became my sister like immediately so she knew that you know that's not my heart and like unfortunately that whole message got twisted but the outcome is she ended up getting on the show and you know she did a, a great job and now the world knows on a bigger scale like how great she is and and you know my other sisters too Sashir and uh you know everybody else that ended up coming through that wave basically so now we got Sam J and, you know, Punky Johnson and like, you know, Che is in there, been in there, killing it. You know, first black man on update, first black head writer, like all that kind of stuff. So it's all good. Look, um, everybody you mentioned is very funny. Sam J is insanely funny. Um, Forget about it. <laughs> yo, big fan of her. Uh, we had her uh, on my TV show, um, you know, a couple months ago and she she's great. So. You know, you went through a period where for years you were like the only black person on SNL. And so I'm curious if did you ever resent or get a little irritated? Because when SNL has a problem with diversity, they're not running to Lauren Michaels. I mean, maybe some are. They're running to you to answer like, Keenan, tell us 
why does SNL have this problem? Or when there weren't black women on the show, it's like, Keenan, tell us, why is this going on? Was there a part of you that ever resented being in that position to always have to answer to the larger scope of the show that you don't own, that you're a cast member of? You know what I'm saying? It happened until it happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that was the one instance, basically, because, like, as you can see, I'm more more than willing to answer whatever questions. You know what I'm saying? And like, I was answering based on the knowledge that I had, and however it was written was not what I said or whatever. Like all that kind of shit. Like I had to deal with after the fact. Like when I was asked a question, I answered it. Like I, this is what I've noticed basically, and it's because of these things and blah blah blah. Like what it was taken as is, oh, you don't think black women are funny and like, that's egregious. You know what I'm saying? Like I would never, why would I ever, yeah, of course I got sisters and my mother and like all kind of like family members. Like, why would I bring my sisters down like that? You know what I'm saying? My Queens, like, you know what I mean? Like, why would I ever do something so crazy and drastic by just coming out of my mouth saying that black women are not funny? Like I would, I would never in a million years. So I never resented anything up until that point. Like once that happened and shit got taken left, that really like hurt my feelings because it was on the culture. Like I had been misquoted on like Fat Albert before, but that was on some old like they think I didn't want to do the movie and it was about me and I could handle that. And I was like, that's not what I was saying. What I was saying was I didn't know if I wanted people running up to me calling me fat. You know what I'm saying? Like because the name is Fat Albert. So like mentally what would that do to me to like when I'm in a restaurant having fun or whatever, or I'm with my family, blah, blah, blah. Somebody running up like, Hey, fat guy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love you. Like it's, it's weird thing to take. Like I appreciate the love, but also those words and blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I was talking about on that. So that didn't really bother me because it was just like somebody making a headline or whatever. But when it turned into like a cultural thing and people like thinking I'm dissing like my community like that, that's when it really like, I was like, man, I have to really be careful about or very clear about what I say. You know what I'm saying? Because, man, look at look at the backlash and look at the the overflow and the mentality or the the thing that people think about you before they meet you. You know what I'm saying? That's not fair. Yeah. But but that's my whole point is like because for so many years you were in the position of being the only that's why I asked you is like, did you ever kind of resent that position? Because the thing is. Aside from what you said about, you know, when people ask your honest opinion about finding black performers, regardless, if SNL had a diversity problem, they were not running to Lauren Michaels. They were running to you. Yeah. And you are not the owner of SNL. You like you don't control. No doubt. Right. So that's why I asked you, like, did you ever resent resent that? I mean, but I never really was like I was never really like flooded with that. Honestly, like nobody was hitting me like, yo, you ever noticed that there's a diversity problem? You know what I'm saying? Like everybody was kind of just like, wow, you're doing a lot on that show, man. You're holding it down, man. They need to get some more people or whatever. But nobody was asking me like, what you really think the problem is? Like it was kind of the one time I was asked that question and it blew into this whole thing, basically. Um, So people I had Seth Myers also on the podcast. And but I guess to answer your question, sorry to cut you, but like, no, go ahead. I I kind of embraced the role of, you know, kind of being the one to hold it down. You know what I'm saying? Like if I if I'm the only black person here, then yeah, I'm going to do every single role. You know what I'm saying? To like let y'all know that we have a strong presence and we can kind of pretty much do anything, even if it's just one of us. You know what I'm saying? So it felt like I was holding the door open like in my mind, like, I'm going to just hold the door open myself then. And then when people come, they come, basically. So I had uh, Seth Myers on the podcast uh, a little bit ago. And what was very compelling was learning about the SNL process. Like, people don't understand, like, there's a pitch process, what you guys go through during the week and everything. So as somebody had to get used to this process what does it feel like when you have a pitch for a skit rejected? <laughs> I mean, it's usually pretty immediate because it's like just silence in the room, basically. So you got to get used to like, oh, I need to make this room laugh, regardless of if I think this idea is funny or not. There's a way to word things where you're going to get a group reaction. You know what I'm saying? You got to figure out what that is, basically. It's not easy to do. I've been bad pitching for years. 
But at the same time, I also embrace that I don't give a fuck role. And I just say what's on my mind. And then that makes people laugh. You know what I'm saying? You got to figure out exactly kind of how to play that room because it's a room full of comedic minds and they're all on, you know, the forefront of where comedy is headed. You know what I'm saying? So they've heard all the jokes. They they can hear stuff coming a mile away, basically. And you got to be clever with it. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. But embrace that silence, man, because it's going to happen. It's like motorcycle riders. You're going to go down. <laughs> All right. So um, long as you've been there, you've seen a lot of famous people who have hosted the show. Who's the host that made you break character the most? Break character the most. Mm. Dave is good. He likes it. I believe, but Dave Chappelle likes to break character. Like he's not up there to try to like stay in character. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's up there to like make himself laugh. Um, like who made me like? John Krasinski had me crying laughing at dress rehearsal just now. He broke character on that subway pitch. He didn't do it for the live show. It was that like weird cadence song that they were singing and he just started laughing in the middle of it because it's the craziest thing ever. That made me laugh real hard. Um, but who does it like regularly? Probably Maya or Amy, you know what I mean? Like any of my old Sandberg to oh Bill. It might be Bill Hader actually just because, I don't know, he just has a way of finding a break moment when it's not coming, and it's still very good. I have a feeling I know the answer to this, but I'd rather you explain it. But since you've been there, again, covers a long amount of territory, but, like, which guest hosts were you the most in awe of? Between Hanks and Dave and Eddie, I would say. Like, Eddie, for sure, just was like Santa Claus is running around for a week, you know what I mean? And then Tom Hanks, man, like the first time he hosted, I saw how cool he was. But the second time he hosted, when he wound up in a sketch of mine, when he was in Black Jeopardy, that just took it to another level. You know, I've always known him as a very like open and giving type of person. But seeing his brilliance, like he stepped his character up in different levels, like in each performance. So like that handshake where he was scared to shake my hand, that was just on the live show. He ad-libbed that, you know what I'm saying? And he was just growing his character and like to watch him do that just for a, a three minute, four minute sketch. It was just like, that's commitment. If Tom Hanks can have that kind of commitment, everybody needs to. People who have this impression of you that like outside of SNL, you don't do anything like your resume is very robust and full. So, in, you know, 2020, you were actually on uh, Ellen's show and you said that like, oh, I think I'll stick around to 2021. Well, we're in 2021. Mm -hmm. You got that historic mark. You're like the Jim Brown or if you want to take it to Emma Smith in terms of most rushing guards ever, like you're that of, of SNL. <laughs> so how much longer are you planning to do this? I, it, it all depends. Like as long as my wife is not like overly, you know, upset about all the travel or, you know, the back and forth or not being at home enough of it all. Um, I, I like to keep working, man. Like, it's not that much of a burden on me like that. You know what I mean? Like, I've been doing it for so long. Like, I just, I know how it works. So the challenge is kind of on myself, however much I want to, you know, give to it or try to create new things and stuff like that. But as far as, like, jumping in and everybody's, like, kind of got stuff for me to do, I can, I can do that in my sleep. So I would love to get to 20, I think. You know what I mean? Like, it's so close and that's a cool number, but Hey, if, you know, people start just, you know, throwing millions and bajillions of dollars at me, I ain't got enough time. You know what I'm saying? I got to go with the, with the money flow. <laughs> so with that in mind, what's the closest you ever come to leaving? I, I guess this would be, you know what I mean? But it's not really that close because I'm able to pull double duty because I'm under the same network with my my stepping out job. You know what I'm saying? So this you know, my first rounds of development, you know, that was always kind of the hope back when, when it was like maybe my 12th season or something like that. And then like, I wasn't even the guy that broke the record. I was just a long running cast member. And I was fine with that. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, all right, let's, you know, jump off and see what the rest of the career holds, but it didn't play out like that. And then I wound up being there to break the record. I was like, all right, cool. Well, now I'm going to be the guy that ain't never going to leave. How about that? And then, <laughs> You know, now it's like, all right, well, you have to be real about time. So once that starts to become a factor, then I guess we'll discuss it. But like I said, 
it's going to take a lot of. Well, well, look, if this makes you feel any better, not that you need to feel better, but Ellen Pompeo said this about playing Meredith Grey. She's played the same character for 20 years Mm. and she is one of the highest paid women. If not, I I believe now she's the highest paid woman on television. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, yo, I could have left for a lot of things, but this job allowed me to be home with my family. I knew what time I was coming home every day. I knew what my schedule was. And there's something that makes me feel like you're the same way. It's like you have a family, you know what your schedule is with SNL and like you're happy with that. 1000%. Yeah. It's like, that makes me feel like from a personal standpoint, SNL allows you to have the things you want to have. It does. It's like you get on the other side of like how stressful it is or how much of a time commitment it really is and look at what a stability it can be. I know it's coming back season after season. I know it's this amount of shows. I know what I can do with that amount of expect expected finance. You know what I'm saying? Like all of that, like I'm in one place and I'm unavailable to go anywhere else for this amount of time. And if my family is around that, I'm around them. And it's like usually pretty that simple. All right. Um, I have a game I want to play with you, but before I get to the game, one last question is, who is somebody you'd love to imitate for SNL, but you're not either sure you can pull it off or you don't think you can pull it off or you're like, I can't do that voice. Who is it? I can't do that voice. Um, that's a good one. That's the thing about good voices is like, if you can sing a little bit, you can pretty much do anybody because everybody lives in a tone. And if you can just catch that tone, like I can't necessarily do Will Smith great, or I never thought about doing Will Smith until I saw Jay do it. But then once I heard Jay Farrell do it, I was like, oh, that's how you do Will Smith. So I guess I could do it, you know what I'm saying? But I just never tried. Like, could you confidently build a sketch around doing Will Smith? Yeah, but I would be totally stealing from Jay the entire time. All right. I get that. So uh, here's how it works, Kenan. I have a game I play with all my guests. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. You pick one and know that what I give you to pick from is based off, you know, things that my deep dive research team has uncovered about you. <laughs> All right. So like it, it, it's fun, but yet I want you to make the tough choice. So come back Barack or Dick in a box. Come back Barack. Yeah. I mean, I don't have nothing to do with Dick in a box that I love that song, but it ain't like it's mine. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I expected you to say that about it. Uh, as you mentioned, when Eddie was on the show, um, one of your comedic inspirations. So trading places or coming to America? Man, coming to America one? Yes. Damn. I mean, only I'm coming to America only because it was a bigger movie and it was really funny and more groundbreaking, I guess. Trading Places is a perfect Christmas movie, but I think it just was outperformed by coming to America as far as like belovedness is concerned. Like I love trading places, but I think coming to America might be edging it out. You actually consider Trading Places a Christmas movie? Yeah, because he's like Santa Claus in it. Do you think Die Hard is a Christmas movie? No, because it's in L.A. Thank you! Thank you! But it's still Christmas, and that's how L.A. look at Christmas. It's messed up. What I often say to people who think this, and you know, it's a whole contingent of people who feel like Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Lethal Weapon was set during Christmas. Nobody says Lethal Weapon is a Christmas movie, right? No, it's a Christmas tree. Like, one of them dudes falls into the Christmas tree. But when it's warm outside, you don't associate that with Christmas. It just doesn't make sense to anybody except for West Coast people. You know what, Kenny, you get me. You understand this. It's like Nakatomi Towers. I get it. But like Die Hard, there's nothing Christmas about this movie. It came out in July. There's literally nothing. I don't even think he had a jacket on in that car eating them donuts. He ain't had no like Christmas cop jacket on like he did in part two when it was at the airport. It was cold in the airport in part two. Thank you. It was snow. And just because you have your limo driver listening to Run DMC's Christmas song, it's like, no, that's 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 like literally not enough. <laughs> yes, it's not enough. Yeah. No. All right. Uh, Price is right or family feud? Price is right. 
only because I grew up with the prices right. Family Feud was like not cracking until Steve got on there. Um, do you know how much a box of rice aroni costs? A box of rice aroni? N- no. <laughs> Cause like literally <laughs> you don't. Okay. Can you I can do, do I can, can do, do any of these I can do the Yodel dude of the mountain. I can do that one. I can price it in with a certain amount if I think about it. But like an automatic cordless vacuum, I don't know. You don't know? I might be off on that one. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, them Trumps or Scare Straight? Man, y'all coming with them. My goodness, because I love them Trumps because it's so groundbreaking. But I had way more fun doing Scare Straight. Like Scare Straight was just off the wall crazy. So I think I'm going to go Scare Straight. I mean, you did it with Betty White, Charles Barkley. Yeah, some some real classics. When you did it with Betty White, that was like literally my pinnacle. You, I'm saying, come on, man. Like, that's historic. But also, like, there's so many good quotes from that sketch. It's crazy. I agree. All right. So, what up with that or Black Jeopardy? Why y'all do that? Why would y'all do that? <laughs> I mean, I, look, this is what I do. I ask you tough choices. Why would you do that? Kenan, tough choices. I got to go with Black Jeopardy. I mean, just because it's it's so groundbreaking. And we had Chadwick in it. And that was just incredible. And like that, I never thought that you could touch anything Will Ferrell. You know what I'm saying? I thought that was like, you know, the holy, holy ground, basically. Um, but the way that my man Tucker and Che were able to flip that and, and make it like a thing that was still very smart, even though it was the, the, the black versions of things, which is what you see a lot of stand-ups doing and stuff. So it seems like not necessarily the newest territory or whatever. The jokes, man, the jokes were so strong. And I I don't know, I got to go with Black Jeopardy. Like, whatever that made me happy and, like, a lot of people happy. And it's it's classic, but, like, groundbreaking and carving out some, like, really, like, mind-blowing type stuff. I think Black Jeopardy was, was like that. All right, I'm going to say something truly unpopular for people who watch Black Jeopardy. I think the, the Tom Hanks one might have been the best one. It was. But obviously, you know, given the events of the last year, the one that people glommed onto was the, the Chadwick Boseman one. So, you know, in retrospect, how do you look at that one now? Like knowing everything that happened? I mean, I just look at it as a blessing, man. I was able to spend days with that dude and watch him be a hyper-focused individual. You know, it, it was inspiring to me because we didn't really get the exact tone of how to make his character really funny up until like the very last minute. And it was frustrating on him and he never snapped. You know what I mean? He was never, he never came out of his face and never was just like, you know, forget about it. He always gave it a chance and he always trusted in the writers to kind of like, you know, mature with what he wanted to get across and what we thought we wanted to get across. You know what I mean? And then when, what we thought, wasn't getting across for whatever reason we had to figure out how to like make those two worlds come together and we got there and that's what made it a beautiful moment so if it could be a tie it would be a tie between those two for sure but it was a very special episode man I just look at it as you know as another reason why not to just run away from snl you know what i'm saying because it's one of those places where a person like that will come and you get to like come up with something silly for them to do and they got to commit to it you know what I'm saying? And then, you know, if they do, everybody wins. And that was a, a double win-win for us. And may he always rest in power. And like I'm just beyond gracious to even have had that happen. But, I mean, it's the same with a lot of people. Like, we had Ernest Borgnine right before he passed. And, like, that was classic. Like, that was on What's Up With That. So I can't believe he made me choose between those two. <laughs> I know. I'm an asshole for that. But, you know, the the great thing about it is, like, in the, those days from when we first heard about Chadwick passing to everything else, one of the most often repeated, retweeted things and videos I saw was his appearance on Black Jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah, because like the whole Karen thing. I think we might have started that all oh, hell no, nah, Karen. Do we start the Karen term? We might have. I think you, I think there is legitimate discussion about Black Jeopardy starting the Karen terminology. Yeah, I think it might have. Sort of phenomenon. <laughs> Yes, exactly. All right. So final one. Big Poppy or Steve Harvey? I like doing them both. God, why? These are so, you know, these are. I know. That's the whole point. 
They're supposed to be hard, tough choices, Keenan. Like Big Poppy makes me laugh harder just because he's so joyous and so like the way we do him is so ridiculous. And like Steve is very straightforward, kind of like pretty much what he'd be doing on Family Feud. You know what I'm saying? And like I wish he liked it better, but he like at first he was kind of mad about it. <laughs> right. But has Big Poppy ever said anything to you about it? Yeah, he like the first one we did was like Iguana Knox or something. It was like maybe the first or second one we made an Equinox joke. And he sent me a picture of him pointing at an iguana. It's like, I got our first customer and like sent me an Iguana Knox t shirt or something like that. So he just was all love from the jump. So I got to go with Big Poppy. All right. Uh, well, listen, you have created some classic moments, characters, skits on SNL, and y- your career is continuing to flourish so I, I thank you for spending this time with me and and going over these things and and more importantly i think um because of your tenure on saturday night live like there's such a testimony there and i, I thank you for sharing that for me personally what's up with that is like my shit and black <laughs> jeopardy <laughs> no doubt all day long yeah dog like the, the 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 Tom Hanks one. What I love about having to prep for this interview is like it forced me to rewatch some things, and I forgot how funny the Tom Hanks one. And I was like, "Yo, it's a lot of people. They're gonna say some other things, but I'm gonna be like, yo, I I I, I think this Tom Hanks Black Jeopardy one might be the funniest one of all time. It's hitting on so many cylinders. Like the the category names, like all the answers leading up to it. It's just. It's a solid one. It's a well-rounded one because what? how much more of a fish out of water can you be than a dude with a MAGA hat on at a Black Jeopardy game show? <laughs> I know. And you're like, Doug, I didn't expect that. Like, it, like the, it's one of those things where it's like, what is understood need not be said, right? And so it's, it's a lot of what's understood. Right. And that's what makes the skit so brilliant. It's like, you don't need to... Mm-hmm you know do all this but anyway yeah uh keenan i'm gonna stop finding over you and i appreciate it man no man you you're the best and and much love with with keenan your sitcom i'm sure it's gonna do great and you're just an incredible performer all the way around so thank you keenan is getting out of here um y'all know what's coming up next final segment fuck it i'm bothered I get into why exactly I'm bothered a brief point of context about black history month, because it directly ties in to what the fuck is bothering me. Carter G. Woodson created black history month, which in its inception was known initially as Negro history week. Now the reason Carter G. Woodson picked February is because this is the month in which both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were born. It also was the month in which the NAACP was founded. So despite the jokes and everybody saying that Black History Month is in February because it's the shortest month, that's actually not why it's in February. But if some of the parents of the children at Utah's Montessori Academy had it their way, the kids at this academy wouldn't learn about the origin story of Black History Month, nor anything else pertaining to Black history. After receiving requests from parents, the school's director sent out a letter saying that they would give parents the right to opt out of Black History Month. You don't want to learn anything about black history? Cool. Just make it 12 straight months of learning about white folks. In the letter, the school's director said she reluctantly was allowing this so that families could, quote, exercise their civil rights to not participate. (laughs) Isn't that ironic? Talking about civil rights and also talking about why you want to opt out of black history. Okay. Uh, Right about now is a good time for me to mention that this school has 330 students and only three of them are black. One, I pray for those three black kids in that school because this gives us some idea of what it's like for them to attend this place. Two, do you know how racist you have to be to opt out of black history month? Now there are only a few basic performative gestures that white people have to do in this country every year to at least give the illusion that they don't completely despise black people. One of them is sharing a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech when we recognize his national holiday. And the other is fake participating in black history month. But these white people, they were like, nah, we can't even do that. And three And I'm asking mostly for the three black kids who go to this school. 
Does this also mean that they can opt out of white history, which pretty much occur nonstop the rest of the school year? My guess is probably not. Now, because of the public backlash, not even a week after telling parents they could skip over Black History Month, this same charter school is now backpedaling and said it no longer will allow parents to opt out. What's interesting is that all of this is happening at the same time. Republican lawmakers in at least five states have introduced legislation that threatens to cut the funding of schools that share curriculum about the 1619 Project, the award-winning New York Times project about slavery that conservatives have been railing against because it dares to present the theory that the foundation of America, starting from the time we fought for our independence against the British, was over slavery. I am reminded of a quote by author Dorothy Allison, which reads, things come apart so easily when they have been held together by lies. In the last few years, the reason it seems our democracy is coming apart at the seams is because of all the lies that have been infecting this country. Those lies started well beyond the last four years, even if some of us want to keep lying about that, too. The history we've told ourselves, the way we've tried to frame things as favorably as possible, the way the people in this country have tried to erase or ignore the contributions, humanity and history of black people is not just who we are. It's who we've always been. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Berner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, supervising producer is Jifa Yador and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. <laughs>